0: and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now we hope you enjoyed today's message.
1: Let's start off with a scripture. Exodus nine, twenty-seven through thirty. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Entreat the Lord, for it is enough that there be no more mighty thunderings and hail, and I will let you go, and ye shall stay no longer. And Moses said unto him, As soon as I am gone out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands unto the Lord, and the thunderings, Thunder shall cease, neither shall there be any more hail, that thou mayest know how that the, Lord, uh, the earth is the Lord's, but as for thee and thy servants, I know that ye will not yet fear the Lord, the Lord God. Kind of a bittersweet verse in a bittersweet time, and a lot of times we focus on, on God uh, showing himself mighty and saving um, the Israelites. What struck me and what I wanted to focus on a little bit in this verse was just one of many I could have used is, is about relationships. You know, we, we've seen family relationships up till now, brothers, and, and we, we talk about that quite a bit, um, how the brothers relate. And, but, but there are a number of relationships we see just in this verse. I mean, there's Pharaoh and his people. There's Moses and Pharaoh. Clearly, they have, if they didn't have one before, and they probably did, they certainly have one now. There's Moses and Aaron. um, And then there's Moses and the Lord. There's a lot of relationships. And and as I thought about it, relationships are interesting in the fact that, you know, we always are striving for better relationships within the family. and We always focus on the fact that Moses and Aaron had a really great brotherly relationship. And every one of the brothers we see before struggled a little bit more with their relationships, but really, relationships, good or bad, kind of define us. They reveal us. Um, so they either shape us or they reveal our character. So let's let me focus on a couple of the different relationships. Let me focus on Jacob's sons, and I won't do all twelve, but I will take the first few. We are familiar with, it's obvious, we talk about it all the time, the obvious animosity between the brothers, right? They did not like Joseph. I, they, they wanted to kill him, right? It led to much grief, but God did turn it to good. Let's go through the final blessing that Jacob gives to his sons, and then I'll use that as a launching point, We're talking a little bit more about the relationships of these first four sons. Let's go to Genesis chapter 49, 3 through 12. First, there's Reuben. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Starting on strong. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, thou defiledst thou it, he went up to my couch. So Reuben, among the many other problems he has, he slept with one of his father's wives. If you talk about a more um, damaging act in a relationship, I don't know that you could come up with one. There's no record that he ever apologized. I mean, it's mentioned a couple of times. But I think it's interesting. It's mentioned here, 147-year-old man about to die. He mentions it about Reuben. Not a great spot, but obviously he rejected his father as much as his father now tells him that he is rejected. The next verse is, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. Oh, my soul, Come thou not into their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor, be thou not united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. That isn't great. (laughs) I've thought about this one quite a bit. I mean, I I, I used to joke with um, my own version of the the way I interpret the scriptures. You know, they, um, they lie to and trick an entire town, Shechem, after their sister is raped, Dinah. And I can understand them wanting justice, but then but, they lied and then they killed. And their father, who we don't know what he would have done, they robbed him of the opportunity to act, right? They, they took it upon themselves. And when he confronts them about it, they say, should we just let our sister be a harlot? And then it sounds like they just turned away. I always would joke and say then they got on their Harleys and drove away. I mean, they really are biker kind of guys, right? <laughs> They're brutal. Now, now, they are young at this point, right? When, they, when, when Joseph was taken, he was 17, and they had a 20-year span in, in, in Syria. So all of the, the men were sort of young then. Say 20 years older for, for Reuben, he would have been like 37 when, when Joseph was taken into captivity. But some years have passed, you know, by the time this, this blessing has come. Um, let's see, 17, 39. Uh, probably 40 years or something like that. So um, they obviously never restored that relationship. Judah, the fourth one. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall be the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. Let's talk about Judah because we don't know a lot, right? The scripture is not that flush with all of these men and what they did throughout their lives. But in his 30s, when the brothers took Joseph, Reuben was in charge, they wanted to kill him. Reuben, it says in scripture, it tells us that he didn't want him killed, but he did allow him to be thrown in a pit. And then he must have gone away for a while because he wasn't there when they sold him to the Midianites. Now think about this for a second. Reuben left them with the other brothers. Simeon and Levi have by this time already killed an entire town and he knows they wanna kill their brother. That's a risky behavior, let me say. Judah did find a way not to kill him. It's not wonderful at that point. He says, hey, let's get some money out of this. Let's sell him to the Midianites. So at this point, you're not thinking Judah's that great either. And the next situation we hear of Judah is is the story of Tamar. What's interesting about this story is it's set in the middle of all of these verses and all these chapters talking about Joseph. And you think, why is this stuck in there? Why did this story even come up? And here's what I think is interesting about it. I think it was a turning point in many ways. I think he had already begun turning, but for Judah, Judah had not done everything right. He had not given his youngest son to Tamar, as he should have. That was the way they they handled things. And he was; she was supposed to raise up seed and she wanted to. But Judah did not do that. She plays a harlot and she gets pregnant by Judah. And Judah is, gave her a pledge. Now Judah has progressed to the point where he is a, a, an elder, a judge in this area. He's at the gate. He's a man of influence, a man of standing. And the thought is that she's going to be killed because she's not married and she got pregnant. And she comes before him and said, I got pregnant by the person who owns this. And it's his stuff. She didn't say anything publicly. She didn't accuse him. So Judah's at a position where he has to make a decision. And here's what I think is significant, and this is why I wanted to bring it up. Judah admits his fault which is significant, right? He admits his faults. He says, she's more righteous than I am. And it's through this lineage, actually, that comes King David and later the Messiah. And from that point on, we see not a lot, but some evidence. What's some more evidence that we see with with Judah? When they want to bring Benjamin, when Joseph demands that they bring Benjamin if they're going to come back, what happens? Reuben says don't worry, dad. I'll take care of it. Dad says, I don't think so. You've already done this once, and it didn't work out well. And it looks like things are going to not go well. And Judah stands up and says, I'll vouch for him. I'll take him, and I'll bring him back. And his dad, this is significant because now you know that Jacob, he's earned Jacob's trust because he says, okay, Judah, because you said it, I'll let him go. And then horror of horrors, Joseph is Constructed the events such that it looks like Benjamin is now going to stay. And what does Judah do? The scripture says that Judah pulls him close and says, Hey, my dad will die if you do this. Take me instead. And it's at this point that Joseph breaks down. It's the first time of breaking and reconciliation between the sons of Leah and the sons of Rachel. And from then on, we already see that the blessing is that the scepter will not depart. So he had enough respect at that point that, uh, that he was going to be taken. So we know that he has progressed, although it's small evidence, right? We know that, that, that there's small evidence there. Those are the first four sons, the first three rejected their father, the fourth one did not. And he's promised that the scepter will not depart. Let's now go to the people that we're talking about in this verse. We have Moses, we have Aaron. I'm even going to throw in Miriam, right? Miriam, the first time we meet her, she's going along with a baby. She's walking along by the river as, as, as he sails down the Nile. And, and she... Offers, you know, I'll go find somebody to be a wet nurse. I mean, she, she watches out for Moses the entire time. Aaron, you know, we know that Moses spent 40 years in Egypt, and then we know that he spent 40 years in Midian. It doesn't sound like he got a huge amount of time with his family, but he must have had some. He's clearly identified with the Hebrew people. And when he's talking to God, Aaron is coming to meet him. This is when he's 80 years old and Aaron's 83. They're not children at this point. They're older. And he comes to him, and and he clearly, and God knows about the relationship. He says, I know he can speak well. And he he takes Aaron and they work together. And truly they work together. As you go through the scriptures and there's just too many and too much. It's so subtle in so many ways that it's hard to to do that. Um, It's hard to give all the different experiences. I, I have my favorites, but... Um, but we do know that they complemented each other, that, that Aaron, in almost all situations, uh, helped his brother. He loved the people. He seemed to be well-loved of the people. And in fact, he is known for, um, for peace within Israel. That's the sages see that he is a peacemaker. Um, Moses doesn't seem to have a lot of, of intense relationships. So it was a very healthy relationship, and we see that play out nicely. Let's, let's go to another scripture, that I'm, and I'll kind of move on from there. Let's go to Numbers 20, 1 through 3. This is talking about something else with the relationship. Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zen in the first month, and the people abode in Kadesh. And Miriam died there. Now, Miriam was six years older than him, but very close to him throughout their life, and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And the people chowed with Moses and spake, saying, would God that we had died when our brothers died before the Lord. This is the horrible moment for Moses. This is when he offends the Lord and is told he cannot go into the promised land because he did not honor him. And it's right after his sister dies. Most of the biggest problems we see with Moses are right after a relationship. He doesn't seem to have many, but he has intense relationships. And when his sister dies, and in fact, the the rock that, that had followed them, as it talks about in the New Testament, was known as the, the well of Miriam. And in fact, the sages have tied the fact of no water to Miriam's death. They're all kind of woven together. But but the point I'm trying to make here is the relationship that Moses had with his brother and sister now through 120 years that he's had. And, um, and he stayed very close to them. And it made a big deal. It, made, it was a big moment for him. Um... So, why do I I bring up these two? Well, the kings come down from Judah. As I already said, the scepter will not depart from Judah as he was promised. The first king of Israel, Saul, was a Benjamite. And I think this is kind of significant because David, who is from Judah, was the second king. And it was his relationship with Saul and later with Jonathan. And Jonathan, it says that Jonathan and and David's souls were knit together. They had such a great relationship. And, And I think of this as sort of, you know, the Judah stood up for Benjamin. And now the kingdom transfers from Benjamin back to Judah. It's sort of the resolution of that event. And now the, now the kingdom comes, and all the future kings come from Judah. So let's talk a little bit about kings. Group leaders, kings in this case, are defined by a set of, time, a, a set of circumstances and the time in which they live. When we think about kings, it does matter what's going on, right? For what, what they do and what they don't do. Same is true for us today. We think of leaders and we think about how they handled the events of their time. Joseph was certainly for, the, for his time. And Judah, although Joseph never seemed to choose wrong, right? I mean, Judah also, he began that healing. So he, Judah also exemplified a being a man defined by the events of his time. Moses another leader who is defined by the events of his time, David. So we see this in the leadership, in the kingly role, if you will. Group leaders or kings also have to show integrity to be a good king. Now, Joseph always showed integrity as a leader. Judah developed it. He he didn't maybe start out the strongest (laughs) But he did develop it to the point where, like I said, Jacob really trusted it. and, and, and Moses is known for his integrity, his exactness, his strict adherence. I, I don't have uh, the scripture that goes with it. But I'll tell you in a minute. I'll, I'll go with the scripture that I do have written down here. Let's go to Exodus 40:16, talking about Moses. Thus did Moses, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so did he. If you looked for something similar words there with Moses doing what the Lord told him, you'll find a whole slew of them. There's a, almost every time he commands him to do something, thus did Moses. Moses did what God told him to do. He's known for that. David, do we think of him as a man of integrity? We should. Uh, let's go to 1 Kings fifteen five. Because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord... And turn not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So given the one horrible experience, and it, it, I'm not downplaying it. It was, it. it was horrific. It was the worst things that you could do. But David is known, and he's known in the Psalms, and you can see the forgiveness that he's given. You can see the love of the law, and you can see his, he's a passionate man. And he really was known for his integrity. Um, they also need to be honest with themselves, especially when they make their mistakes and they have to judge righteously that's important for kings or leaders of a group to do in proverbs twenty nine fourteen we read, "The king that faithfully judgeth the poor his throne shall be established forever." So we can see that God cares about that Judah if you think about it, his, his incident with Tamar, he was the first person to admit that he was wrong. I mean, other people had made mistakes and stuff like that, but he, kind of, he publicly acknowledged it. It's kind of what it was known for, it, it's a significant event. And he judged righteously. And we see that his integrity was throughout. Moses, again, as I've talked about, uh, let's look at Exodus 18.21 for Moses. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetedness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. Now this is when actually he was being um, advised by Yitro. but we saw that this is what he did. He established, if you will, our court systems that we follow today. This is throughout Judaism, throughout Western culture, this idea of handling things at one level and then appealing up to a higher level, that was when it started. All of it's sort of based on that. So judging righteously, um, that's that's what this is about. So Moses, obviously, uh, he understood leadership. Now David, we've already talked about his integrity, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite, but let me address that a little bit. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, and David said unto Nathan, let me me set the scene for you before this verse. This is when Nathan comes to him and tells him the story, the allegory, the parable, in which David is just incensed. And then Nathan, a few verses before this, says, you are the man. You're the one who did this. And that quickly we see as we see in Second Samuel twelve thirteen, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. So David immediately admitted his sin when confronted. So again, a great example, in spite of a very bad situation, of what a leader should and does do. We should also note that the sages and Israel secular leaders all have agreed that only somebody who loves the Jewish people should be Israel's leader. And we can see that played out time and time again through the prophets and and the leaders and the kings, the ones that we think of fondly, loved the people. How many times did Moses plead for them and beg for their repentance? Now, priests... Priests are the sons of Aaron, not Moses, the sons of Aaron. I think of leaders within our congregations are less like kings and more like priests. And let me explain why I say that. Priests are defined by process. They are outside time. It's not individual circumstances that concern the priests. The priests were cyclic same things over and over, the same cycle. They were continuous. It just stretches on. When one passes, the next one's put in. Most of the time, we don't even know who the priests are (laughs) because it's a continuous function, right? Now, Aaron was obviously the first priest. Um, Samuel, although a judge in Israel, was also a priest. He was given to the Lord. Ezra was also a priest and he came back. And, And each of them I would say, are thought of more for process, more for establishing patterns, right? More of the day-to-day worship. And community leaders, priests, should be peacemakers and strive for unity. Do we see this with Aaron? Well, according to the sages, Aaron was known for loving and pursuing peace. Let me read the one scripture we all know about unity. Psalm 133. It's only three verses, one through three. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life evermore. I don't think it's a mistake that Aaron was chosen for the psalm talking about unity and peace, right? It, it, he dwelt in unity with his brother. He dwelt in peace. I, I love the whole imagery of the dew just settling. You don't see it happen all at once. It just settles. And and that's what the unity and the peace is like it, if you have unity within a community, it's peaceful, it's calm. It just settles on that community. Samuel also, um, I think of him as, as a, a person of unity. I, one of the verses, <laughs> one of the verses that we see um, uh, with Samuel is a verse I heard quoted to me much in my youth. Um, quoted by Samuel. When Samuel was confronting Saul, if you remember the situation, Saul had, had, uh, was told to wipe out the, the, the King Agag and all of his people. And, uh, and he didn't. He saved some alive. And Samuel confronted him. And he said, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? My father used to start his conversation with me. What is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears, Kevin? You know. (laughs) And then he would sum up with this verse. 1 Samuel 15, 22 through 23. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he also hath rejected thee from being king. So, as a leader, Saul did not admit what he was doing, he did not follow the Lord, he did not have integrity. And Saul and Samuel told him that the Lord had rejected him at that point. Ezra was also another, if you think about the priests and things like that, and much of what we have in liturgy today is attributed to Ezra in the time of the return. Some other points about kings and priests. They were separated. We don't keep... They didn't have kings that were also priests or priests that were also kings. We didn't allow that in Israel. That separation of roles is even manifest in our own constitution by the checks and balances and the branches of government and also from the separation of church and state. They're not in opposition, right? When we talk about separations of powers and things like that, they're not in opposition. Not really. It, it's, it's like humility and obedience, we're told to be humble, and we're told to obey. Those aren't in conflict, but so often we see those who are obedient are not necessarily humble. So it's rare to get the combination. It's, it's kind of like the verse in the New Testament when it talks about the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Messiah. They're not in opposition, but you see the fullness. You see the, the, the two that it's rare to get them to work together. That's the same kind of thing between being like a king and ruling righteously and being exact and living together in unity and having peace. They're not necessarily in opposition. So we live in communities, and that's really a priestly role. If we're not part of a community, we don't really have any influence. If we were just really righteous apart from people, It might be good for us, but we would have no influence on anybody. Even if people heard about us, they'd be like, well, I don't know anything about him because he's by himself. It's not very effective. It's not very meaningful to say, well, this guy really knows how to handle arguments if he's never in a position where, where he would ever be conflicted with, right? I mean, it's easy. If you're the only one making the rules, it's easy to always have the rules. It's hard when you get people together. So, that's the point I want to try to make. So, let's look at a verse, Romans 14, 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. So, we are commanded not just to be obedient, but also make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. Okay? It's an ongoing process, good or bad. We live with the consequences of our choices. That's one of the things I've always thought was interesting. And we see this somewhat with David. We saw it somewhat with many of the leaders. If they make a mistake, you still have to go on. The same as us, right? None of us are perfect. We make mistakes. Who are the people that are our harshest critics besides ourselves? It's usually our families because they know us our whole life. It's not like you can start fresh. They know everything you did wrong, right? That's where the rubber meets the road, I think, in creating unity and peace. We have to know what each other is, and we still have to love each other. And that's not an easy process. It's gradual. It takes time. It's cyclical in nature, right? It's continuous. It always happens. I do want to point out that love and forgiveness are essential to both the kingly role and also the priestly role. Both of them need love and forgiveness, and that sort of makes sense. God is Lord of all. So we're all really subject to the king. So we all have to follow the king's rules. And again, they may seem different. They may seem in opposition to each other, but they're not. Let me give you a couple examples. John 14:15. If you love me, keep my commandments. No wiggle room. Done. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. Matthew 5, 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. It's kind of a high standard, right? And we know these verses. But on the other hand, we read in Romans twelve twelve, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That one's a little bit more nebulous and it's a little harder, I think, even though we can't possibly attain the perfection, even though we can't possibly keep all of his commandments, we have more trouble living peaceably with all men. I think, that's my observation, people will try to follow rules, but they are far less tolerant of other people not doing it the way they do it, right? So in practical terms also, let's read from Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three through 25. This is Yeshua. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ye ought to have done, and not leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat, and swallow a camel. I've always loved that. Both are unclean. A gnat is so much tinier than a camel, but they strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. That's pretty dramatic language, if you think about it. So it's not like Yeshua is letting us off the hook. He wants us to obey all the commandments. But at the same time, we read in Romans. 1417, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. Now, I have heard this verse quoted to me at different times, why I should not be eating biblically kosher. Doesn't matter. Look, you're told it's not meat and drink. Is that what that verse is saying, that don't follow any of the rules? The same as Yeshua when he was talking to them. It doesn't mean that. They're not in opposition. But they're also not the most important things. Let's read in Mark 7, 17 through 23. And this was another example where he was confronted, Yeshua was confronted about following, in this case it happened to be traditions that they had of washing their hands. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable, and he saith unto them, "Are ye so without understanding also? Do you not perceive, and that whatsoever thing from, which, from without entereth into a man it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and go without into the draught, purging all meats. I mean, it's a very descriptive just of our biology you eat something, it just flows through. He said, that which cometh out of the man, that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetedness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. It's a much longer list than the foods that we're we're concerned about or washing our hands. They're not in opposition. They're not. But we have to remember that these are also uh, examples that were given to us in Scripture that our focus should not be, we can focus for ourselves, like I said, in in our desire to follow God, we can desire to follow commandments, and we will be, better or worse at times than than others. But that's an individual thing. But when dealing with other people, we need to be better. We need to love them. We need to not, and, and that whole list of things that they did wrong, you know, the covetedness, all the other things. There's so many ways we can mess up with other people. So, why am I bringing this up? The different roles between the kings and the priests, as far as I'm concerned. They come together with one person Yeshua. He had perfect obedience, the only one who had perfect obedience. Let's read in 1 Peter 2 21 through 22. For even hereunto were ye called because Messiah also suffered for us, leaving us an example. So this is the example we're supposed to follow, that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin? We're going to fail. I'll tell you that right off. Neither was guile found in his mouth, who when reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Well, who is it that to him that judges rightfully? Well, of course, it's God. So let's forget about the the fact that we're going to sin. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about this. When people revile us or, you know, when when we are threatened, what do we do? Do we turn to God or do we react in a very human way? Continuing on the scripture, who his own self bare our sins and his body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. So, if anybody was confused about by his stripes we are healed, thinking about sickness, no. The sickness is sin. That's what he took care of. Now, this is just that first verse, but I'm going to. Not only does it talk about his righteousness, not only does it talk about his example that we are all to follow, but what I also like is the fact that it talks about, as was mentioned earlier, Christopher mentioned this, his atoning sacrifice, right? It's our way to the Father. It's our way to unity. It's, he has truly made it. Not only is he perfect, but he, he has provided the way for us to truly be united. So he is doing both the priest and the kingly functions. Just in in this one verse, we can see we would not have any unity had it not been for Messiah. But in case you need to know that he was a priest, let's go to Hebrews 4, 15. For we have not a high priest, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. That's that's Yeshua, that's our Messiah. He obeyed the Father. John 14, 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. He did, and he mentioned it many times. I do what the Father said. We can see that he again as an example. His followers were among the commoners and also among the rich. You know, we see that Joseph of Arimathea, quite a wealthy man, quite a leader within the community. He had righteous and he had sinners that followed him. And his followers continue to grow today. You talk about unity and forming a community that will, he's already said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? The believing community. Another way you could word it, John ten twenty seven. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So there are a lot of people who say, yes, I follow the Messiah. But you don't see it. You don't see that they do. Not just in terms of their own righteousness, but also in their love to one another. Because that's really what it comes down to, doesn't it? Those are the ways that we know that we follow him. You see, he is the king, and he is the high priest. Matter of fact, he's the only priest named in the kingdom. He is the priest. In Revelation 17, 14, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords, King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Hebrews four fourteen, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, as we talked about, that is passed into the heavens, Yeshua, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, we should obey God. But it's not our obedience that saves us or even defines us. We keep Sabbath. But again, it's not keeping Sabbath that makes us unique. We must love each other in the same way Yeshua loved us. And if we do that, we will be united. John 13:35. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. Ye have love one to another. That's our distinctive. You might stop every so often and think, how are we doing on that? Is it obvious to everybody in this community that we love each other? Sometimes I think we are not necessarily. <laughs> let's, let's do better. <laughs> but that's what we've got to do. Our community... Kings need a group of people to rule. You have countries. They rule by the fact that they're countries. Think about it in the believing community. Do we have that kind of mandate, if you will? No. Did they back in ancient Israel? Yeah, because it was sort of a nation. It was a bloodline. It was part of a kingdom. And so if you're part of a kingdom, you belong to the king, right? For us, we have a spiritual king, and we do belong to the king. But is there any one person that speaks for all believers? There's not. So let's not pretend we are kings. We are not running the show, right? Only God is running the show. He is the one in charge. So what's our role, even as community leaders? We need unity. We need to love one another. We need to make peace, right? We should, in fact, follow God. You know that I believe that. I think it's a wonderful thing in a midrash with uh, with Paul when he's talking about Abraham. Abraham was known for his righteousness, which is why he used him and said it wasn't his righteousness that made him a friend of God; it was his faith. They are not in opposition. If you think about it, really, it's a matter of loving God, which is our righteousness and following his commandments, and loving our neighbor. But we're also told, you can't say I love God but hate my neighbor because you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So what we need to focus on is loving each other. So let me conclude with one more scripture calling us to unity. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brethren farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Don't we want to be comforted? Shouldn't we desire to live in peace? And what is better (laughs) than the God of love and peace being with
0: us? You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pina Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, Excellent children's programs And Bible studies on Tuesday nights For more information Please visit our website www.roshpinah.org That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H Dot O-R-G You can also reach us by phone At 405-842-1967 Or email us at info at Thank you for spending time In the Word with us today Shabbat Shalom And blessings in Messiah Yeshua